0: Hey guys, I'm Joe McCall. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. And on this special interview today, I have Michael Jake. Some of you guys maybe have never heard him, but the guys who know who Michael Jake is, he's one of the coolest investors in the United States.
1: Well, there was a time, Joe, funny that you're streaming on YouTube. There was a time when I had the number one video on YouTube for uh, for real estate investing. That is long since past. I haven't shot a video in ages.
0: I was gonna bring that up here. So you know a lot of you guys don't know Michael Jake, but he's a rock star. He's a really excellent, awesome investor. You know, you you go to the big masterminds and people know Michael Jake, and he's one of those guys who has a lot of property, um, has survived the downturn and thrived, and is doing very very well in a difficult market. I mean, he's doing things that a lot of us wish that we could do. And so Mike's just a good friend. I've known him for a long long time. I remember first following Michael Jake on the YouTubes right when you had I would do a search for real estate investing and I don't know if it was in your living room or something but you had some really yeah. good videos about yep. uh, lease options or and and subject tos and creative financing and things like that at the time Michael were you trying to be YouTube famous or trying to gain a social following i mean this was like 2007
1: and 8 do you remember yeah, i so i did run a local coaching program in, in yeah. fact, back in back in the day. And I think that's what my goal was with the YouTube. And I was, you know, I was kind of on the Dan Kennedy train for a while. And a, and a good friend of mine I knew through there, Terry Weigel, got really good at doing YouTube videos and getting placement on YouTube. And it's real funny. We were at one of these Dan Kennedy conferences and I was probably four or five beers deep. Having a conversation with Terry. And, you know, he's telling me here's how you do the videos and here's how you tag them and keywords and blah, blah, blah. So I literally went up to my room at the hotel and shot a video, I think on lease options, you know, semi inebriated. And I knocked out pretty quickly Terry's own video on real estate investing. So I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. So, you know, I, I mean, that was the good old days when, you know, we didn't have competitors like you uh, owning the space. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it was just, you know, I thought I was trying to feed my local coaching group and I don't think I ever was really that good at it, but no, I mean, learning the tagging and things like that, it was definitely a fun little ride while it happened, but there's
0: guys right now that are doing real estate videos like, um, meet Kevin, um, uh, uh Graham Steffen, some of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're doing a million dollar months from Google. From yeah.
1: You believe that? I, yeah, I, I do. In fact, I've sort of watched a little bit of Graham Stefan and I don't know the Meet Kevin guy, but I watched Ken McElroy videos and, and he referenced Meet Kevin, I think. So. Yeah, I probably should have stuck with it, but I mean, I hate to say it, it's kind of like a job, you know, like, I I mean, if they don't keep working at it, I think the following kind of dissipates, but- Well, here's uh, the big
0: problem with it too. YouTube and in second can pull the rug out from under them. Now I'm not gonna get into politics, but YouTube's already doing that. And they've said they would do that. Anybody who disagrees with this election and who says, and I'm probably gonna be pulled off of YouTube for saying this right now, you just watch. In five seconds, I'm gonna be gone. No, we'll (laughs) see. But anybody who says like, hey, I don't think Biden won, Trump won. Google's already said in their blog, and I I didn't believe it when I heard this and I looked at it and I saw it. We will remove your video and maybe even delete your channel. Like insane. So here's one of the problems when you're relying on Google. If you do something wrong or somebody hacks into your account, and I've heard this many times, somebody hacks into your YouTube account, does some stupid stuff, YouTube, they'll shut you down. It's some $10 an hour minimum wage person in India can shut your entire account down and wipe you out. And then if you're going to complain and try to get it back up, who are you going to go to? You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Yeah.
1: Good good Um, luck getting through to somebody at uh, YouTube. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you gotta, you gotta own the race course. This is one of my, absolutely have all your eggs on just one platform. If any of you listening to this or into social media and you want to be an influencer and all of that, you know, if you're, if you think that you, you're going to be a rock star forever on Instagram, Instagram's not going to be around forever. You know, YouTube probably be around for a long, long time, but like, they can change the algorithm, they can hide your videos, they can so you have to own the race course. And yeah. one of the cool things about what Michael's doing in real estate is he owns a lot of properties. So Michael, let's talk though first about how did you get started in real estate and when? What what years was this?
1: I started originally because of a really good friend of mine I've known since third grade friend of mine, Sean, from where I grew up in Ohio. And, you know, in high school, I remember Sean's dad starting to flip houses and buy some rental properties in Wilmington, Ohio. And Sean was like 19 and bought his first rental and, you know, kind of sweat equity, fixed it up over time. And, you know, he kind of did it on the side. And right after, so I, I grew up in Ohio I got a business degree and and wanted to move out to the mountains. had another college buddy drag me out to Montana and I just kind of fell in love with the West and wanted to move to the mountains and ended up here in, in Colorado Springs. And I was kind of on the IT train when, uh, or let, let's call it the IT wave when it crashed right after the millennium. And I had just bought my first house with the plan of, of kind of doing what I could to, to replicate what Sean was doing, building, building a portfolio rental property. So I bought my first house with the plan of, I I got an FHA loan, you know, low down, I was going to live in there until I could refinance it conventional and then go buy another one and just sort of move laterally and and build a portfolio of rental properties, you know, the slow, steady way. And but slightly after the millennium, slightly after I bought that first house, we all got called into a room and said, hey, 30 percent of you guys aren't going to have jobs in the next uh, 90 days. So
0: now people forget about this time or some people weren't even born yet listening to this. We're talking about the dot com bubble burst right late 90s early 2000s right
1: yeah but i mean in it it was all the the the, the millennium and the date change stuff created yeah. a lot of demand for it workers to get in there and get the code changed and then after the millennium where's the demand what are you going to do now yeah yeah and, and i mean i didn't do a lot of that date change crap but but that's ultimately how i ended up in the space okay. and you know it was just round after round after round of layoffs, and they were taking a lot of the people in and you know, I did mainframe stuff, which like I don't even know if those exist anymore, but they um you know they were outsourcing jobs to third world countries where they could get that quote labor significantly cheaper than what they could in in the uh, in the yeah. United States. so. You know, we we enjoyed the wave while it happened, but we created our own demise because, you know, what it cost to keep us as an employee outweighed the value that we had after the demand for that labor was gone. So
0: isn't that crazy? Because I graduated college in the spring of 2000. And I remember in late ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine, 1999, back in the last century, <laughs> the last century, being worried like, man, am I even going to be able to get a job when I graduate in six months? Right. That, that was a real fear. A lot of people were worried about that. Yeah. All right, so you're in Colorado Springs. You start buying
1: homes, but you lost. Yeah, your job. so I met my wife out here in 2001, and thank God, by you know, way, because way. we're going to be talking about how awesome your wife is. Yeah, she is. She's a rock star. <laughs> Best investment I ever made. There. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we met in 01 We bought a house together in '02. Made the old, you know, the, my house a, a rental. So kind of slowly following the plan. But, you know, we also got married in 02 and that kind of slowed the pace of any investing. So by 03, we we're like, I want to do this seriously. I don't want to live in fear at, you know, in my corporate job, like every six months or so, there's another round. And I literally was sitting in a, in this huge office building. And initially it was so crowded. I had to share a bullpen with like, there were six of us in a bullpen. You know, that's a real fun work environment. And then I finally ended up because like all these people got laid off. I finally get a window seat, you know, which was awesome. And there's nobody on this side of me. There's nobody behind me. And, you know, but the writing's on the wall, like how long is this party going to last? you know, there's a really good coach mentor, uh, Bill Bronchick, who at the time was running the Colorado Association of Real Estate Investors. So I, you know, I started going up to Denver and, and going to those meetings. And I started, you know, I bought some of Bill's courses. In fact, my first one was on lease options and just kind of like wanted to make a business out of this and ended up buying... Buying a triplex, not my best decision, but it you know, it got me off to the races and got me started. So oh three, I officially had a crappy business card printed up that said I was a real estate investor. And were you um, were
0: you fired by this time? Did you still have a job?
1: No, I was not fired. By late two thousand and three, I was pinning up checks in my cubicle, trying to get fired. Like I was trying to get a package at that point. Like I mean, it was pretty amazing transition. Like, A, my wife is a rock star and said, you know, when we, we kind of went to one of these, you know, free seminars where it's free to get in and expensive to get out. And, and I was like, you know, well, okay, let's go, honey. And she's like, you said you wanted more information. You said you want to do that. There it is. Go sign up. And I said, well, if I'm going, you're coming with me. You know, <laughs> like I was a big chicken. And, you know, she, you know, we went to that seminar and, and we were able to repeat it a lot. And I, and I started buying Bill's courses. And I mean, Bill, 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 I, I really got to give him credit because, he, yeah. you know, you can learn all these tactics and stuff, but Bill was an attorney and he was really good at explaining all the legal stuff. And I needed yeah. that. And I Especially needed, you know, and around. I had good paperwork too. So that, and I, I kind of, by, by cold calling, by knocking on doors, by networking at, at local clubs, I, I came across a guy who I just pestered the crap out of. His name was Brett and he had credit lines. And I knew if I found a deal, I could you know bring him a deal. And back in the day, I had my database, my contact database resembled one of these, a little notebook. And I wrote everybody's name down and you know, and I knew what they were looking for. And ultimately, one of the other people in the club found a wholesale deal. I called Brett. I said, hey, I got an opportunity. You know, we went and looked at it. And and he's like, well, what do you want? I said, dude, I don't know. I said, like, let me, I'll, I'll help you. I'll do some sweat equity. I'll. Uh... So anyway, he knew I was pestering him constantly. And he told me no or completely ignored me a lot. But, I, you know, it's kind of getting close to what a deal needed to be and what it needed to look like. And so anyway, I did, I did some sweat equity. We eventually... I put my course to use and I found a rent-to-own buyer. I filled it. I mean, before we called the business Turnkey, I created a turnkey deal out of accident. And and then we sold it at about 10% below market to another investor that I knew that wanted to buy rental properties. So it all worked out and I walked away with a check for $6,500. Wow. And that was just like at that time, it was like, wow, that's like major money. That was like a whole, you know, month or more of working in the cubicle hell. So um, it was just kind of off to the races. And then the next deal, uh, you know, actually Brett found it and he's like, hey, I'm going on vacation. If you find a buyer for this wholesale property, by the time I get back, I'll split it with you. So, I mean, we had nothing in writing. It was just I mean, he said, I got this property in Woodland Park. I said, dude, I made one call because, again, fancy Rolodex. I, I called a guy that I knew wanted rental properties in Woodland Park, and I, I made 8500 bucks on that deal. Wow. Then, uh, you know, I think I did a couple of lease options with a tired landlord, got that from Bronchek's course. So now I started having some passive income on top of what, you know, the triplex, you know, the original house. And, you know, I kept plowing it in into marketing and mailing letters and and doing stuff like that. And by the end of the year, I mean, I think we did... I don't know, maybe a quarter mil in cash and equity. And what and year was this? This was 03.
0: Excellent. It's an 03.
1: Yeah. Good. And then
0: almost $250,000 in equity and profits.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Deals. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, we I paid off debt put it back into my education, you know, clearly I spent a couple of bucks on courses and <laughs> seminar manuals, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but you know, by Oh four, I was kind of ready. I'm like, this is working. I was closing, uh, you know, on average one and a half deals a month and, you know, they weren't all big ticket, but that was enough. You know, that was going to replace my salary. And we had, you know, we ended up flipping the house we bought to live in, in Oh four. And after we did that, we bought a little bigger house. In fact, I'm still in that house. That house was supposed to be a two to three year hold. And and anyway, oh, four to now, we're still here. So that move put enough money in the bank to where we had a year salary of myself and my wife cumulative. So, you know, I kind of had that safety net to walk away from the job, but, you know, we did get, I say we, my wife got pregnant and we were on my insurance. So I had to ride the train out till August of 04, but man, I, you know, I was taking advantage of the the window seat with nobody by me at work. Like I was working leads. You, you know, I would get to work early. I would pound out all my work. And and I'm sure you've read the four-hour work week at some point, Joe. And and I was I was living that before that was even a book. Like yeah. I was pounding through my work. So I could spend my my lunch on doing real estate <laughs> in the afternoons. And like I was so sure I was gonna get a package, man. I'm like, they're gonna so fire me. And I did my review in 04. And they're like, we're so, you know, you're doing such a great job. And they gave me a freaking raise and I nearly lost it. I nearly laughed at my boss over our phone call review. And and I was like, crap, I'm not going to get a package. (laughs) So anyway, my son was born in August and basically I just, I just never went back. I gave my notice from a marketing seminar in Orlando and I kind of did the old Ron LeGrand. I fired my boss in a polite way. I liked him. He was a good dude. But anyway, I just never went back. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I kind of went to two marketing seminars back to back and that really helped me refine that process. And I kind of went quickly from doing one, one, one and a half deals a month to, you know, to two to three to four. And, you know, just kind of built on it from there. 04. All right, so this
0: was 04. Yeah, was between 04 and 07, when the market started teetering.
1: My wife joined me in 05, so we had, you know, no safety net of job or corporate benefits or any of that stuff. But my wife wanted to have a family business, and you know, that was a huge blessing. So I mean, I effectively have a partner that all the income stays under one household, who's smarter is- than you who's smarter than me and like we're we're a good mix like i think like if you've ever read traction i'm definitely the visionary and she is the implementer and you can't have one without the other and me i would just be a a bolster of oh shiny object syndrome and and you know she can kind of put the good ideas you know to the to the ground and and get it running so
0: we'll talk more about that too because you know she's managing all your properties now and Mm and You do a really, really good job of managing your portfolio.
1: Well, um, and, and absolutely, and and that was an evolution, you know, because in this era we were doing, you know, what the guru, gurus would all say, you know, oh, just sidestep management and do rent to own and blah blah blah, and you get more cash flow and you get option consideration, and you know, later on I'll I'll tell you. That was not a good experience for us, yeah. but we basically ran two operations. We did, I did wholesale and, and what I would call wholesale. like this was, you know, we're coming into the subprime time. So, you know, you could basically get a property, clean it out and put it out there and get retail. I mean, effectively retail for a property. And, you know, that was great. You know, we were making crap loads of money and, you know, some of it we plowed back into the business, but we never really fully rehabbed the house. And, and I think that's key. We never really fully rehabbed the house until okay. the market tanked. And hmm. that was like, you know, talk about who moved my cheese. It was, um, you know, you really had to hunker down. And and so 2008, you know, basically I built a, about 78 houses in a portfolio. Most of them were, you know, subject to existing loans or or few lease options and a few, you know, BRRRs or RRs. I don't know how many mm-hmm. R's they mm-hmm. have. Used, yeah. Yeah. And then you know, I went from probably you know having a net worth of very attractive to probably somewhat negative. I'm not somewhat negative, probably big negative. <laughs> you know, I laugh about it. I was I was in Phoenix with uh, a good friend of mine from from Dan Kennedyville, and we were hiking Camelback Mountain. And uh, Gerald asked me, he's like, "So man, what do you think your net worth is right now?" Because he he kind of knew how many houses I was. And I'm like, and I just you know gut reaction, I just kind of laughed and I said, "I don't know, probably nothing." <laughs> You know, but we we held on and the rent roll was there. And that was the era where we just, you know, we really realized we got to get good at management or we're going to lose it all. Like, I mean, we're going to lose about, it all. About how many
0: properties did you own when the market crashed? Started crashing? 78.
1: 78 homes.
0: Mm-hmm. And you were buying a lot of them subject to creatively, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by my model, when I was buying them, I'd have at least 10% equity. You know, I'd kind of walk through the, you know, here's what you get with a realtor, less 6%, less 3%, less blah, 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 blah. And here's, you know, here's where you shake down. So marketing wise, I would do my direct mail list. So I would target them right at that window where, you know, they may or may not be able to have enough equity to sell. And if they didn't have the time to sell. So we're in a unique market. We have five military bases here, Fort Carson being the biggest one. And we have what's called PCSs, permanent change of station. So they rotate them in and out, rotate them in and out so they get a 100% loan they buy a nice house you know you know pretty new and excellent condition to qualify for a VA loan and then they unexpectedly have to move sometimes and you're signed away to the government and you're going to do what they say so and a lot of those guys are just like terrified to to be an out of state absentee landlord and i always joke like uh, that was always my evergreen source of deals: the out-of-state absentee landlord. Easy list to get, but if you work it, the deals are always there. So my goal was: I don't ever want to be one of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, you know, we we just racked them and stacked them, and you know, ten percent equity on like in in two thousand and six, I bought thirty six rentals. So wrap your head around that. 2007, I, you know, I went to this seminar by by Jack Miller and John Schaub called The Subprime Meltdown. So I went to this in 2006.
0: That was before anybody was really even talking about that, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a crystal ball and I just didn't pay enough. I'm like, "Oh, it's not going to be that bad here." You know, like we we knew what was going on in Florida with in the condos and the California and I'm like, "You know, this is Colorado Springs, you know, slow and steady, nothing really dramatic ever happens here. We're going to be fine." And I was wrong. You know, I mean, 2008 our our properties pretty much dropped 20% overnight. I mean, it seemed like it happened overnight and now we went from Wow, I'm I'm smart too. Holy crap! What did I get myself into? But and what
0: kind of cash flow did you have on average for each
1: of these properties? Not much. Not we had enough to support them. Not so, much
0: for vacancies.
1: I, I mean, my, my typical house pre collapse was probably around a a one eighty to two hundred house that had roughly let's call it an eleven hundred dollar payment that I could rent for twelve fifty to thirteen hundred. So how did you
0: survive that?
1: My wife and management and, and just kind of making it work. And and wow. we did, you know, again, like we were kind of following this whole recipe of, you know, you get option consideration down, you get premium rents, and that's going to solve all your management problems. Yeah. And, you know, my wife built a an online training platform, did live classes for our tenants. You know, we gave them an entire curriculum for free on how to get their financial act together, from basics of how to how to balance your checkbook, how to pay your bills on time, how to clean up discrepancies on your credit report. You know, we we also, at one point, we were hiring credit repair as a part of their, you know, so we'd take part of their down payment and buy credit repair for them. I mean, we, I mean, dude, we pushed, pulled, and dragged that in any way we could possibly to get them through to the finish line. And, you know, ultimately, our biggest competition was it did work, but, you know, they went from, okay, I can't buy a house and there's like a handful of rent to owns available to now I can get qualified and the world is, you know, the world's their playground. So we we had a, lo- a lot of people went and bought a different house. A lot of them bought new builds because the, you know, the builders were given really good deals at that time. And, and, you know, the new car smell is gone from the house they're living in. So, so you,
0: like when we, you had a vacancies and you always had vacancies, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Although because of your wife, your vacancies weren't that long, but like, did you have enough in reserves to cover that, those mortgage payments?
1: Honestly, at the time, no. And and, and I'll talk to you about that because, you know, the flipping, you know, funnel got squeezed because I mean, basically I had one lender and I had an amazing relationship with this lender and I had access to all the capital I needed. And through some development deals, he had, his business got shut off. So I went from having all the money I need to, to, to do deals to no money to do deals. So I had to go to, you know, purely a wholesale model. And, you know, what happened was my marketing cost was here and I would make a profit some, you know, up here. So the profit was significantly higher than the, the the cost of the marketing. And what happened after the market tanked is there were so many people that didn't have any equity that could have said yes before, can't say yes now. So my marketing cost went to here and my profit went to there so i was effectively treading water all year not not really making a lot of profits so like oh eight was a rebuild year i had to scramble to find private lender relationships so we could do do flips we had to scramble to figure out how to do rehabs and and i mean in that process of, of probably 08 and nine you know we, we we took on a lot of personal debt you know we had a home equity line we had some other credit lines that we'd established to do flipping and those ended up as long-term credit lines, you know, that we were using to feed, you know, vacancy and and, and maintain the properties. And people that didn't buy our houses, which was most of the tenant yeah. buyers, you know, if they put five grand down, they took ten grand out in maintenance, and, and we lost a month or, or more of vacancy while we had to do the fix-up. Other people, I mean, it was a re- it was a huge recession, so we had a lot of people losing their jobs. It would have stayed, but couldn't. Because they lost their jobs. So again, we had we had so much more turnover. You know, from management, turnover is what kills you from a cost perspective. Like when you lower the turnover, you radically lower your, your holding costs on a property. And and ultimately around, I think it was 06, I was at a Dan Camp, maybe it was 07. I, I ran into a guy named David Tilney, and I'd heard this guy's name. Every time I'd go to a real estate seminar. You know especially the Jack Miller John Schaub stuff they're like oh you're from Colorado Springs you must know David Tilney I'm like no who is this guy I need to meet him and and he's kind of like the the single family house you know property management guy and we somewhere around there Lori and I both went to his seminar and we both slowly started adopting his philosophies of management and we slowly got rid of the rent to own and went to a traditional management. And that really, you know, by effectively getting less upfront and believe it or not, charging less monthly, we made radically more money because we had significantly less turnover. We had significantly less wear and tear on our assets. And effectively, like thinking of the tenants differently, it is revolutionary. And in all my management philosophies, I'm going to give credit to David Tilney. I mean, he really is the guy to teach this stuff. But, you know, Joe, we, we, we both have businesses and we both have employees. And, you know, what we both know about businesses, you, you don't want to hire the first employee that fogs a mirror. We want to hire rock stars that can hit the ground running. And t- tenants are no different. Employees are an asset to our business because typically their production is higher than the cost. So more employees, more leverage, more leverage, more revenue. Tenants are the same way. They're just another point of leverage. And you want to hire rock stars. And, and how do you hire a rock star? Well, you got to have the right compensation plan, right? You got to A, start with a house that an, a, a great tenant would want to move in. You don't want dumpy properties with deferred maintenance. Yeah. You know, you want, you know, like if, if, if somebody that is a, a, a poor credit risk walks in to buy, let's just call it a vanilla car, they're going to walk in with poor credit and they're going to buy that vanilla car at a payment up here because their credit is a reflection of their you know, desire and ability to pay. The same person that comes in who has excellent credit, impeccable history, can walk in and buy that same exact vanilla car for a payment down here because they're a much less credit risk. Does that make sense? And who's so- going to take better care of the car? Exactly. So because they want to maximize their return when they sell that car or trade it in and tenants like I'm using that analogy because I I like cars, but, (laughs) but, you know, we reward them and we attract them with a lower payment, not a higher payment. If I put the top, if I want like a rent to own caliber payment on my property, who am I going to attract? Somebody who's used to paying high prices for things because their credit sucks. You know, who am I going to attract if I if I if I advertise a lower payment for the property? Somebody who's deserving of the lower payment and recognizes value. Well, you're
0: going to have when you lower the payment. I'm assuming you're going to have a lot more applicants to choose from, right?
1: Amen. You're going to have, have a much
0: bigger gonna, pool of tenants to choose from, and then you you uh-huh. you dive deep into really doing background checks and, and finding the good ones, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, we have very high criteria. Um, we publish our high criteria, and as long as they meet the bulk of it, we have the leniency to, you know, so they don't have to meet all of it. But all of it is very high. It's it's a high mark. So, you know, we pre-screen out a lot of people before they even apply. You know, and ultimately, it it's it's, you know, what do you do when you want to hire a rock star employee? Do you, you know, do, do you slowly give them a few hoops to jump through to see if they can jump through them and make sure they're the right fit and they're not going to roll over and play dead? Yeah, we do the same thing with our tenants. You know, they don't know the length of the application process before they start, they just start, and the process at some point weeds out the, you know, the. What, I'm trying to think the, the non-hackers. What's the, the? I'm sorry, I went back to uh, what's uh, Full Metal Jacket? You know, the, the dreams are we will weed you out. No, <laughs> and, and, but that's ultimately it. That. And we want to we want to have rock star tenants that understand our philosophies of maintain and improve the asset, get along with your neighbors, and pay the rent on time. Mm-hmm. And ideally, stay the rest of your life and your children's lives as well. We basically treat them like adults, and we leave them alone. You know, we don't treat them like kids. We respect their privacy. Do we do inspections? Yes. It's typically right before lease renewal. How do we also do inspections through our team of of subcontractors? Like when there's minor maintenance items, man, those are our people. You know, there are eyeballs between inspections to see what's going on in the house. And they will let us know if something weird is going on, like between when they moved in. But But ultimately, it's when you start hiring, you know, we went from high turnover and now our average tenant stays about four and a half years the last time I... I, That's
0: crazy. And people don't think about that. You know, and
1: and I'm a guy who loves lease options. mm -hmm. Um,
0: I've bought my own personal residences with lease options, starting with lease options, right? Mm -hmm. There are some, there's a place for lease options, but don't feel like that's the only way to do this. Right there,
1: there is a place for it, yeah. and there is there are markets where that that probably can work.
0: But you still you can't throw out your normal pre screening process, mm-hmm. and uh, you can't lease option cheap properties. I see so many people doing that lease optioning the cheap sub hundred hundred and fifty thousand dollar homes. I just, in my opinion, I think that's a recipe for disaster. But I want to ask you some more questions, Mike, if that's all right. During this time when the market was crashing, did you, and if you, maybe you don't have to answer this, if you don't want, were you able to make
1: all of those subject to mortgage payments? Did you miss any of the payments? Uh, no. Look, if I do anything on these, like I, I got no product to sell. I, I want to share the harsh reality and hopefully uh, like it was huge for me learning from, you know, from gurus, from local people, but it was also, I learned just as much from their failures mm-hmm. and like, you know, I used to tell people when I was coaching, fail forward fast. Like, you know, failure isn't a, you know, you either fail or you succeed. It's like you're going in one direction or the other direction and slowly you're trying to get back to the line, you know, closest to the destination you want to get to. And it's just feedback. But but no, to answer your question, you know, we really buckled down, we tightened our, our belt and we made all those payments.
0: Which was a struggle, that was not easy.
1: No, it wasn't. And and we did take on a lot of personal debt. but you know, whether they were somebody else's loan or not, that's what I agreed to. And, you know, we treated them all like our own loan. And, you know, I will tell you a story because there was, there was one neighborhood in particular that I bought from one unit that was PCSing out in 2006. These guys were literally passing the phone to me. And the one guy that started this had one house that had 200, 250 month negative cash flow. but, I, but I got all six of these guys houses in the same neighborhood. So all six of these houses came and that was kind of the the turd and the punch bowl. But, you know, in the middle of the recession, you're looking to cut costs any way you can. Well, this guy calls me and he says, hey, my wife and I are filing a bankruptcy. And I wondered uh, if, if that's going to impact you. And I said, well, you definitely, you know, talk to your attorney, but you're going to want to include that property in your bankruptcy. And, you know, anyway, we had a short conversation and that was kind of the end of it. And I'm like, you know, and I kind of thought, and I'm like, I followed up with him a month later. I said, Hey, I just wanted to see what's going on with the bankruptcy. And he's like, well, we don't have the money for it. And I'm like, how much is it? And then I don't know. He said like $1,600 for the attorney. And I said, I said, listen, I agreed to make payments on this property and I intend to, to keep doing that. This is a
0: property I, you got under contract and you sold to this investor.
1: No, no, no. I bought it. I'm the investor. I bought the house from him. Okay. This was the one of the six properties that had 200 250 a month negative cash flow. Okay, okay. So he, he was obviously still on the loan and he was filing a bankruptcy. Okay. So you know, when you file a bankruptcy now, the the house is the only collateral for for the loan. So I said, listen, hypothetically speaking, if I paid for your bankruptcy, would you be okay if I turn the house back over to the bank? And he's like, yeah, I don't care. So that's what we agreed to do. So that was the one house that, A, I wrote him a check to pay for his bankruptcy and with his permission, we we basically gave it back to the bank. Okay. Okay. Now, let me wind the clock forward. Wish I still had that house. Because I, I mean, I know how to do the math now. I know how to work the financial numbers. And I mean, it's just sort of like putting $250 into a 401k every month, hoping you get a long-term yield. If I could plug that yield, I, I would keep the damn house. Wow. Like, I, I, I mean, a house is just a doohickey to create a yield. And and I'm in a market where all these sub-twos, they're not high-income properties. In fact, they're probably no income in the first five years when you really look at vacancy maintenance and, and, and repairs. And, and it's you know, you're building an investment vehicle that throws off yields that come in the form. I mean, if you completely remove income, you get depreciation in, in the, in the midst of the mess, when we were flipping properties after the market tanked, we got to keep the first $380,000 of income tax free because of depreciation that carried over from our rental portfolio. So just significant, it, it's significant during that phase, when I, I also capped my income, right, about $380,000, you know, I mean, it was more than that. But we had business deductions on, on top of that. So basically, we were technically in a zero tax bracket during that phase. So that's when I took my and they also allowed you to do traditional to Roth rollover, because the government want more tax revenue now. So we took my old IRA from corporate America, and I did a conversion to Roth and paid zero taxes because we were in the zero tax bracket. Wow. Okay. And so, I can tell you um, what I'm doing lately because that's what I'm doing is, is working my Roth.
0: <laughs> so you survived the crash. Yeah. You know, what did you start doing in 2010, 2011?
1: Paying off personal debt aggressively okay. that came with the portfolio. Started buying heavily again. I mean, I wished I'd have started buying more like in, in 10 for long haul because like, Looking back, every loan originated from you know 2008 on was wholesale. I mean, retail 100% VA loan in 2008 is flipping wholesale because that 200,000 house was now a 140 house or or 160 house, which in today's market is a 350 house. Like it was so dirt cheap relative to where it was going to be because we dropped so far below the inflation curve. Like I I, I mean I quit calling, you know, value increases in houses appreciation. I just call it inflation because that's what they do. They inflate. You can call it speculative. You can call it whatever. Look back at history. Like never has there been a a window of 10 years when a house was still worth less than what it was 10 years prior. So, you know, that, that said, I look differently. Like nowadays, houses I bought at 2007, if I'm selling one, I'm walking away with, you like, like six figure checks like and i most of that wasn't from inflation or appreciation most of that has been from amortization another benefit so pay down yeah yeah i i even have it on my little coffee mug thanks to pete fortunato i have all the the benefits that can be carved oh. a piece of property.
0: would you do us a favor and send us a picture of that So I can put it on the podcast.
1: Yeah, sure. I I mean, you got to give credit to Pete Fortunato. He's the guy that came up with it and uh, (laughs) teaching that philosophy of carving up the benefits for, for probably 40 years. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to see a picture of that. And I'll try to put it on the podcast Mm -hmm. here. Can I ask you about in the last five years, you know, you've been on a buying spree, you're buying a ton of property. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for when you buy a property And, and what's your criteria?
1: Well, let's let's back it up to up to two years ago. I was definitely on a buying frenzy. You know, I built up our our personal portfolio to a little over a hundred doors. And at that point, you know, we always had at least one employee to help with management. And and my wife kind of realized, like, we're at capacity. So you self
0: manage all your properties too, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have our own management company. So you know, my wife oversees that. And you know Nancy and and Sharon are the two that we have that work in that uh, that uh, part of our business. But I mean, Lori effectively is the CEO, our COO, and I would be, I guess, the CEO. Um, I I don't know. I'm mostly unemployed right now. You know we you know we were we were in CG. We were in the full let's scale scale scale. You know we really scaled up our flipping business. You know we, like CG. Collective genius. By genius. the way, for those, of you don't for those know, who don't know, what that is.
0: Genius, it's, it's a, mastermind, big man.
1: Yeah. So we joined, and I doubled our flip business. I doubled that again. Lori didn't want to manage any more properties, and I wanted to keep buying. So I created a partnership with another. You know, I, I would call him sort of a student of mine, but he was a, a student of success on his own, and he was really good at property management. He was really bad at sales and marketing. I was really good at sales and marketing. And and we built up another thirty-two houses in another uh, company that we 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 co-owned. Um, so about two years ago, we decided, hey, it's been a good run. Let's part ways. So we we sold off all thirty-two of those assets, and we each deep you know paid off a bunch of our our personal assets uh, uh, along that road. Good, um, Michael.
0: Michael, I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. My main marketing guy director just texted me, and he needs a Zoom account for a coaching call. So I have to get off Zoom right now. Can we break this up into a second part? Would you mind? Not at all. Let's do it. Oh, this has been really good because I have about five or six more questions I want to ask you. And Michael, I appreciate you so much. Guys, if you want the show notes, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com. We'll do a part two and we'll see you guys there. Thanks a lot.